The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, how did the first quarter of 2020 end up, and has the market bottomed out yet? We will also discuss the impact of surging unemployment and how to rebalance portfolios, plus signs of hope and words of wisdom from investment legends. That's with our guest, Director of Research and Senior Portfolio Manager at CLS Investments, Grant Engelbart. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at where we are in the markets. The first quarter of 2020 has officially closed. How did it end up? Well, Robin, there are so many numbers to talk about, but in short, it was the worst first quarter to start a calendar year in U.S. stock market history. It was the quickest bear market in history. It was the most volatile March in history. Um, Just some other stats, you know, it usually takes for a bear market to begin almost a year, like 250 days on average. It only took 17 days this time. And there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, First of all, there was just a backdrop of historically expensive markets. We've talked about that a lot in the weighing machine. So that the kind of the, um, the kindling was already there. And then you throw in things, obviously, such as coronavirus and then plummeting oil prices. And then it's just the race was on. Uh, there's so many different numbers to talk about, but we'll just we'll just stop it there because I know we have a lot of material to go over today. <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring in our guest, CLS Investments Director of Research and Senior Portfolio Manager, Grant Engelbart. Hey, Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. So what are your takeaways from the market's performance looking at the quarter as a whole? Rusty mentioned some of the things from March and, and how crazy of a month that was, but it's really, if you look back at the quarter, uh, January seems so long ago to a lot of people now, but you had totally different market environments uh, throughout the quarter. You had uh, a continuation of the bull market rally in 2019, um, in the you know kind of the first from January to uh, to February, mid February, and you had very calm markets. Uh, mid February uh, things started to crack a little bit um, as as the you know realization the virus may be coming to the United States. And then you saw a very, very swift downturn, um, huge down days, uh, you know, record-setting down days uh, in a row. And, you know, Rusty mentioned 17 days to a 20% decline. Um, we had some choppiness. There was one particular week in mid, mid-March mid that was um, extremely volatile up and down, uh, moves limit up and limit down, which basically uh, the, the market futures market is stopped when it's either 5% up or 5% down. That was a commonality in the mornings. You had dislocations all over the place that we can get into. Um, but then the next couple of weeks, things started to calm down. And then we started to see some uh, a, a strong rebound in the market towards the end of the month. So it was, it was, uh, it's been quite a quarter. Um, it feels like it's been forever uh, as, as I think a lot of people feel uh, from, from being at home for however long they have been. Right. Yeah, I think the quarantine's lasted about three and a half years so far, as far as it feels in my house. Um, Rusty, so the question on a lot of people's minds right now is, have we reached the bottom yet? Is this it? 
Well, it's a great question, and, and the answer has to be maybe, because we don't really know. Uh, but I think the, the important thing to answer for long-term investors is that we are in a bottoming process. And as we're recording this podcast, we're already well off the lows, but it's a volatile situation. We're still going to get a lot of bad economic data. Uh, we're still going to get some bad health data. I mean, there's still a lot of negatives that we still have to deal with. Uh, looking back at past bear markets, you do see a lot of bear market rallies. Uh, it's, it's a, so therefore, it's very high probability we can test those lows and not even kind of eke them out. But the important thing is, again, I think we're in a bottoming process. And for long-term investors, it's definitely a better time to buy than to sell. Again, when it comes to what we're looking for, I mean, the health data really is first and foremost we have to look at. Uh, again, our expectations is that it will begin to improve in mid-April. And kind of the key number to look at is the infection growth rate. Uh, usually when that number kind of rolls over, when we're looking at kind of the experiences in other economies and markets around the world for coronavirus, that's usually been a turning point. When we look at past epidemics, that's usually, again, the infection rate when that rolls over. Now, the death rate is actually more important from um, for, for many other reasons, uh, but really when it comes to the market reaction, it's the infection rate uh, growth data that's the most important. Now, things that are positive, which I think, and it's the reason why we should take, um, we should be positive about the, the, the markets moving forward. There's a whole bunch of different things. You look at a lot of different market indicators. First of all, the volatility, which is really destabilizing, has exploded higher. But if you only knew where the level of volatility was uh, and looked at past history, this is actually a better time to buy than to sell. Usually in volatility, this is high. Uh, there's a lot of kind of fear within the marketplace. And when there's fear, prices are depressed, and then everything's normalized. You have higher returns on average moving forward and higher probabilities of that as well. Related to that, you can look at investor sentiment. Investor sentiment is the most negative it's been. Well, it depends on the survey you look at, but some of the surveys we like to look at, it's the most negative it's been since the early part of 2009, right before the first hour, right before the last bull market started. Corporate insider buying is the strongest it's been also since the first quarter of 2009. When quarterly returns are as negative as they were, the chances of a positive gain in the next quarter, next two quarters, over the next year, again, higher than average probabilities, higher than average gains. You know, it can just go on and on and on when you look at both market indicators. And then when you go beyond the market indicators, you can just think about the backdrop of monetary and fiscal policy. Um, and lastly, you know, we did talk about how the market is expensive. The market is no longer expensive. I mean, it depends on the valuations. It depends what kind of time frames you're looking at. Uh, maybe it's still not really cheap by some measures, but no matter what, it's no longer expensive. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that uh, monetary policy backdrop, because the response really has been massive. Both the federal government and the Federal Reserve has, have responded with just unprecedented speed and scale. So how is that likely to impact the markets once we get to the other side? Well, it, I mean, it is amazing, the monetary and fiscal response. I mean, it is nothing like it was 10 years ago. And you could argue that as scary as the situation it is now, and it is scary uh, for all the reasons why it's obvious why it's scary. But in terms of sort of the financial system, it's not like it was 2008. We Our financial system was really in jeopardy 10 years ago. It's not like that. In many ways, as the former Federal Reserve Chairman said, it's like this massive snowstorm has hit the whole country or, or a, other, some other natural disaster. Still terrible, still destructive, but it has a transitory nature to it, and we'll, and we'll recover on the other side of it. But in terms of the, the monetary response, again, it is just incredibly outsized. It's multiples of what it was in 2008. So again, 
uh, the speed of it, the size of it, and also the size of it relative to what the impact of, or, or the kind of the situation was in the first place. It's all very, uh, very, very positive for the economy and the markets moving forward. It also did clean up some uh, uh, concerns that are happening in some of the credit markets. And at this point, that looks like it's been cleaned up as well. The federal spending also has been massive. It's also been very proactive. It's also been very quick in terms of just, just getting the response out there fast just to kind of give it a frame of reference. So we're talking about a couple trillion dollars. The US GDP is approximately 20 trillion. It's actually north of that, but we're gonna have an economic attraction and take it a little bit south of that. So the fact that it's about 10% of GDP is massive and federal spending in recent decades has is, is, um, averaged between 20 and 25%. So you add another 10% on top of that. It is pretty massive. So assuming the health data improves, and the economic activity should improve shortly thereafter. And then you have all this fiscal and monetary fuel on top of that. Um, it's a, just a really good backdrop for the market to do well moving forward. So as you said, it kind of depends on how quickly economic activity gets back to normal. Um, so one thing to watch here is the city of Wuhan in China, where the outbreak began, has uh, it's finally ended its lockdown, which went on for months, and the Chinese economy is sort of restarting. Um, so because it, this all kind of depends on the ability of the markets to recover quickly, um, depends on the ability of the economy to get back to business. So um, as we're watching that unfold in Wuhan, Grant, what can we um, deduce about what we're seeing from China's recovery and what that could possibly mean for our own recovery? Yeah, so a couple of factories or a few uh, there's been a few mentioned factories coming back online across China in the last couple of weeks. And then finally, the, the kind of symbolism of Wuhan being uh, taken off lockdown, I think, is important for uh, you know China to display to the rest of the world, amongst other things. Um, all in was 76 days that the city was on lockdown. Um, so that's about two and a half months, which if you look at the time periods where the United States was put on lockdown and you make that comparison, again, a lot of differences in um, our cities and our economy, our government. But if you put that comparison in place, that puts us on lockdown until about June um, here. Uh, what's important to remember is with China is case growth really started to peak from exponential standpoint in mid-February. Um, and actually, you know, that's kind of when our market started to crack and we've seen outperformance of Chinese markets, as we mentioned in a few places before, as a result of that. So I think that that's worth mentioning because we're coming to that point, it seems, here in the United States, um, and, and the market may be pricing that in already. But if you look at the pictures from Wuhan, um, you know, people are out and about. Uh, these are again, these are state-sponsored pictures, but people are out and about with masks. Um, you know, everyone still has a mask on, but they're getting back to normal to a certain extent as far as um, you know, spending and and things like that. Temperature checks are very common um, from from what I hear. Um, in and out of your home, in and out of businesses. Um, and actually, we saw mentioned this week that um, Disney would potentially be doing di uh, temperature checks on guests at their parks uh, when, whenever those do reopen, just at a minimum to be a sense of, uh, um, you know, kind of a sense of, of support for, for uh, you know, employees of the parks and, and guests in the parks. So uh, some similarities there uh, and positives, but uh, you know, long ways to go, I think. Um, so probably one of the most concerning indicators for investors and everyday Americans who are directly impacted 
um, is the unemployment data that we're seeing. So in recent weeks, we saw just an absolutely dramatic surge in unemployment benefits never seen before. The first week after the crisis began, new unemployment insurance claims hit 3.3 million. That far outpaces the record that was set in 1982, which was 695,000. The next week it doubled to 6.6 million. We have new data today. As of this recording, it's another 6 million. Um, really scary data. How should investors be considering it, Rusty? It is absolutely horrific, scary, and unprecedented. Um, as investors, however, the key to remember is the labor market is a lagging economic indicator. And again, the stock market is a leading economic indicator. And I, I've taken that call from a lot of advisors and investors already. It's like, how in the world can the market be up when initial claims were that? And again, just remember that the market was down almost 40% before any of the economic data got bad. Um, it's just, again, it's, again, labor data just is a lagging indicator. So one thing that investors can do, and this, this probably surprises many, but if you only had one data point to make a decision in terms of what to think about the market, and it was the unemployment rate, believe it or not, the only time the market on average generates above average returns over time is when the unemployment rate is high. In this case, using research from Ned Davis Research, and they consider anything above 6%. We're officially not there yet, but we basically all know we're going to be above 6%. Um, that happens about one-third of the time, looking at economic and market history. Um, and the rest of the time, the market tends to generate below average returns remarkably. Uh, the same thing is for initial claims. When initial claims are high, uh, above, in this case, 400,000, uh, generally returns moving forward are above average. And when initial claims are low, uh, generally, uh, market returns are below average. So it's pretty remarkable. It's a reverse relationship. And again, it's that lagging and leading effect that both um, in the stock market's leading. And the unemployment data, also think about it, in terms of what the Federal Reserve will do, and it depends what fiscal policy does, a lot of it tends to be a little more reactive. And, and again, in this case, the government response is, is so incredibly proactive, quick, and big. Um, again, I think that sort of the normal lead and lag times in terms of things is sort of bouncing. I think we'll just see a quicker bounce even in the economy than some people might expect. Grant, in your weekly three that's coming out this week, um, you wrote about one step that we can take as investors to be proactive over our portfolios, and that's rebalancing. So walk us through what we need to know here. Yeah, it's Michael Haddon uh, helped, helped write this piece, one of our portfolio managers as well. It's pretty basic concept, but it's something we don't really think about and, and often don't necessarily think about when the market's extremely volatile like it has been. Your allocation to your portfolio can shift dramatically uh, based on market movements. So if you think about how strong 2019 was, equities are up you know, 30%, bonds did well as also, but um, your, your over allocation to equities would, would become pretty high going into February right, without, without rebalancing. Of course, if you rebalance your portfolio back to your standard either risk target or um, asset allocation target, you would be uh, in a better position. And then, of course, in the, the reverse of that, when, when the market fell, uh, you started to shift the other direction and you took on more risk, um, equities fell further, um, and then you're out of balance again. Um, that that happened on the, to maybe a, a smaller extent um, so far this year. But if you look back to 2008, um, from 2007, if you had a 60-40 portfolio, by the time you got to the market low and March of 2009, you would have a 40-60 portfolio. And then, of course, we know from March in 2009 through the rest of the year, it was extremely strong returns um, that you would have, you know, you would have underperformed because you didn't have that full risk. So it goes both ways. You want to keep risk 
uh, and your allocation in line uh, on the way up and down. Um, and so we think, you know, thinking about that, having a, a money manager that does that for you and, and you know, targets an asset allocation or risk profile makes a lot of sense. Let's also take a look at how the ETF marketplace has fared during this period. This is something else that you wrote about um, in your weekly three. Can you break it down for us? Sure. There's kind of a, a lot going on in the ETF world I wanted to address here. I, I like to talk about ETFs a lot. Obviously, it's, it's a big coverage of ours, um, but a few different things happened. Uh, first off, it just flows. So flows and ETFs have been positive, about $70 billion so far this year. Um which I think is a, is a good sign. You know, I think investors are taking losses that they may have uh, in in active mutual funds and things like that, and moving those into ETFs. Um, you know, investors are are embracing the the tradeability and usability of ETFs, and uh, we see alternatives and commodities, in particular, gold is is, is capturing a lot of assets, uh, even some in oil. Uh, we've seen quite a few inflows from that perspective. Uh, one thing we saw during that the kind of the crazy week, if you will, that I mentioned earlier, where we um, ha- had a lot of ups, ups and downs, limit up, limit down, five uh, percent moves every day. Uh, we did see some, you know, dislocations in ETFs, uh, and when, when I say that, I mean the ETF appears to be trading at a, a premium or a discount to its the underlying value of its assets. Um, and this happens occasionally in, in ETFs, and ETFs have a self-arbitrage mechanism that can correct for this. There were a lot of reasons that it did happen. I don't want to get into all of them here. Um, but first off, in, in fixed income, bonds don't trade very often. So an ETF trades every second. A, a bond trades maybe once an hour, maybe once a day, maybe once a week. Um, and so the, the ETF becomes the discovery mechanism uh, for that. At one point, actually, bond ETFs, treasury bond ETFs were trading at, at a tighter spread or, or had better liquidity than the actual treasury market itself, which is generally known as one of the most liquid. Um, so ETFs really, uh, you know, volumes picked up and they became uh, a, a very important part of the market. And we saw any of those dislocations correct themselves uh, in, the, in the, you know, the week or so that followed as, as markets calmed. And what kind of turnover have we seen in terms of new ETF launches and closures? Yeah, naturally, you know, an ETF issuer would not want to launch an ETF kind of in this space, depending on what what it's targeting and things like that. We've seen about 52 launches this year, but about half of those are, are what are called buffer ETFs, which launch every month. Um, there's nothing wrong with those ETFs, but they, they just have a, a standardized launch date. Uh, and then term bond ETFs, which is kind of just a group of fixed income bonds or fixed income ETFs that mature at certain dates. So those kind of, I put those in their own buckets. And, and so you, you only have about 25, 26 launches uh, in the ETF space there and about the same number of closures, so about 50 closures. But a lot of that has to do with uh, something Invesco did. What I think is really important so far this year is that even in the kind of middle of this crisis, um, there were two ETFs launched that are active, non-transparent ETFs. So traditionally, ETFs display their holdings every day. Um, and that's one of the reasons that an active manager like a, a American Funds or, um, you know, some of these large active managers, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, don't necessarily want to put an active fund out there. They don't want to get front ran. Um, but new structures are in place to allow for that to happen. And two of those launched from American Century uh, two weeks ago. So I think that's really important to watch and to see how those perform and trade. And so far, so good because I think that's a huge trend going forward in ETFs. Right. And have any ETFs succeeded in this environment? 
two different worlds, right, on the way down and the way up. But um, we saw energy, financials, kind of real assets, value ETFs just really got hit hard um, on the way down to, to that 323, March 23rd kind of, um, you know, near-term bottom there. Um, and then those also rebounded very hard, which which is important to see um, for a lot of reasons that that, that rebound has taken place as, as the kind of future is being priced in there to the ETFs to a certain extent. Um, government debt, U.S. Treasuries have really the only shelter outside of kind of alternative products on the way down. Um, we saw Treasury ETFs uh, take uh, do do quite well. They've been fairly flat on the way back up, but um, those have been the big winners. But now interest rates are so low that the attractiveness there is is uh, it's gone. All right. Well, let's move on. Rusty, in your monthly review, um, you wrote that several market relationships are likely to reset as a result of this crisis. So let's review a few of those that we're watching particularly. First, value versus growth. Yeah. So again, usually when you have a bear market after an extended bull market, um, there is usually a leadership change in which sectors or asset classes lead the way afterwards. Um, having been through multiple cycles, you see it all the time. And the first one is looking at value stocks. So uh, value stocks have underperformed for 12 years and by many measures now, in fact, I think by every measure, it is the longest um, under, period of underperformance by value stocks and also the deepest period of underperformance by value versus growth. But the things to remember, it isn't just a matter of just being a cyclical thing. It is obviously right now we're having severe economic contraction, but when we come out of that, it's just almost a math thing. We're going to have above average uh, earnings growth and economic growth, probably quarter after quarter after quarter for a while. So just in that environment, value should do better. Value also does better when inflation and inflation expectations move higher. Now, again, we're having a severe demand shock, but demand, hopefully, again, it's transitory. And when it comes back, demand will be above average in many cases, but you also have supply shocks. You also have the fact the federal deficit's the largest it's ever been. You have monetary and fiscal policy, which is extraordinary. You add those all up. It's hard to imagine that uh, inflation, inflation expectations don't move higher. And again, of course, the relative valuation gap between growth and value is already extreme going into this bear market. And obviously, it's even greater than it was before. How about small caps versus large caps? You know, really, the story is, is really the same. Um, small caps do better usually coming out of bear markets. Uh, small caps do better with above average earnings growth and um so really, really all the same sort of variables. The relative valuation gap was also significant between the two. Small caps have actually underperformed even worse than value have this year. And um, so I think it's another extraordinary opportunity to look for small caps to do better in the years ahead. What about active versus passive funds? Uh, and then as a reminder, active funds are those that aim to be different from their benchmarks in order to beat them. And passive funds track and match uh, benchmark returns. You know, I do like the topic of comparing and contrasting active versus passive. There's a lot of reasons for the differences in returns. Of course, the biggest and most sustainable reason over time is the fact that passive investment funds are, are just a lot cheaper than active. Um, obviously, that has changed. There's been so much pressure on investment fees throughout the industry. Active is still more expensive, but not nearly as much so. Another reason why, and a really big reason, is that Actively managed funds tend to have tilts towards smaller companies. So again, uh, they have more exposure to small caps, just generally speaking, over time. And if small caps have underperformed as much as they have, not just recently, but in recent years, 
that is a tremendous headwind that's been in the face of active managers that we anticipate will go away. So I think it's actually kind of reasonable to expect that active should do better. And not only that, just from an intuitive standpoint, um, the market was just going up for so many years there. It was just easy to sort of buy the market. And there was so much money that just went in the market, just give me the market. But you know what? There's going to be winners and losers in this new world. And I think that active managers will be able to prove their worth in this sort of environment. Okay. How about international versus domestic? Well, there's a lot of things on international versus domestic. So obviously, again, it's a relative valuation thing because international has underperformed for so many years. Um, you can talk about demographics. You can talk about growth. A lot of those favor international. But really, one of the biggest determinants in the relative valuation between international and the U.S. is just the the where the U.S. dollar is going. And the U.S. dollar has generally been strong in recent years, and therefore the U.S. market has generally outperformed. This may also change, and this may change for a couple of reasons I just mentioned. Uh, well, one is sort of the valuation difference. You can look at purchasing power parity, which is actually a poor short-term indicator, but it is a sense of value. And again, over time, it does sort of revert to the mean. So that favors a weaker dollar. Uh, interest rates uh, between the United States and the rest of the world, the United States have had much higher interest rates. So that's been an advantage to the currency. That is no longer as strong as advantage as it once was. Uh, a big determinant of currency value is uh, federal deficits. Again, our federal deficit is going to explode. All is equal. That would suggest a weaker dollar. I also think as we come out of this bear market, it's more of a risk on environment. So if value is doing better and small caps are doing better, it's probably going to be a risk on environment. The dollar generally does better when it's risk off because it's considered as a safe haven. So again, that would put, take some pressure off as well. And I could go on. So anyway, I think there's a lot of factors that sort of suggest that the dollars will probably get weaker in the years ahead. And that would, again, be a tailwind for international versus the U.S. Finally, real assets like commodities. Well, commodities have underperformed also for many years as financial assets have done better. And we've been in a low growth environment, a low inflation environment, a strong dollar environment. All of those would suggest that commodities would underperform. Probably not as much as they have, but nonetheless, they have underperformed, and those are all valid reasons. So now we're in an environment where if inflation is starting to creep higher, um, the dollar is starting to get weaker, um, that would suggest that commodities would outperform. Uh, commodities, from a very long-term strategic standpoint, make sense for multi-asset portfolios. They are an amazing portfolio diversifier and help reduce portfolio risk for multi-asset portfolios. And I think from a tactical shorter-term standpoint, they seem to make more sense than ever. Right. And these are all areas that we have emphasized for a while now, right? So that should bode well for our portfolios here in-house. This is the time. Yeah. Um, Grant, you wrote about some signs of progress in the world's efforts to combat um, the coronavirus, as well as some trends that could serve us well in the future. What are you feeling hopeful about? Yeah, you know, spring is usually just a, such a positive and hopeful time of year. Um, various holidays, sporting events, all these things. And, and so uh, I think it's I think it's important for a lot of people. I know there's a lot of hardship out there, but to, to stay positive and think about the positives and kind of seeing that conversation turn a little bit um, in a lot of places, which uh, I, I think is good. There's a few, just a few things to highlight. Uh, and, and Rusty mentions a lot of this as well in his monthly uh, review. He does a great job of that. I encourage you to check that out. But, you know, just the ingenuity behind, the ingenuity in our country and world to just make change. But now all of those brilliant minds at these tech firms, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, corporations, huge foundations like the Gates Foundation are basically aligned to stop this thing. 
Um, and that alone, you know, you know, gives me a lot of hope. Um, this, the flattening of the curve uh, appears to be working, you know, it's, it's still a little early, um, but the social distancing and, and if we can continue that, I think, it, you know, it seems to be working. New York has had a, a rough, rough week, but at the same time today reported the lowest net new hospitalizations kind of since it has began. So starting to see those, those green shoots a little bit, um, you know, just the promise of, of a vaccine or antiviral drugs, better testing methods, uh, better prepared hospitals. You know, the world is going to take a different stance on everything now, right? Sanitation, vaccines or sanitization, just safety in general. Like, is anybody ever going to go to work with the sniffles again? I don't, I don't know. Um, and of course, the market moves re recently. The, the rebound, um, you know, Rusty has, has been talking about this for some time and like the daily market videos, just how there could be a very aggressive rebound. And we've seen that um, happen. And the market is somewhat pricing in just the end of what future recession we will have or the, the recession we're currently in. Um, and, the, you know, they got to remember the market is, um, you know, looks forward to things like that. So, you know, that's important for investors, of course. Um, and then the returns, you know, the expectations, you know, as Rusty mentioned, the return expectations for all these asset classes are now so much better than they were before. And I realized that you had to take the pain to get to that point. But for someone that would be worried about investing before, you have to look at this with a bright lens of opportunity um, going forward. You also asked a few questions about how things might change in the future, not just for the marketplace, really, but for the world. Like, will companies embrace working from home more and video conferencing? Which also made me wonder, you know, how many people in commuter cities like New York and London will be able to convince their employers that they don't need to spend two or three hours on the train every day. Um, so you had a lot of good questions in there. Um, what were some of your other thoughts? Yeah, I, I, there's, I could go on for days about this. I, I, I enjoy thinking about this. I think um, it's important. You know, we don't know what it's going to look like, but um, there's a lot of different impacts on life, but on, on markets and investing as well. You know, I think, well, companies, are companies going to start keeping cash on their balance sheets more going forward, you know? Um, especially some of the cyclical companies are they going to take a new approach to that you know healthcare healthcare investing does that become just a a staple of everyone's portfolio i mean it's it's a decently sized piece of of indices now but is it going to get bigger you know is that something that people want to have that that allocation to almost like technology is now um corporate guidance has been dropped for a lot of companies just because they have no clue what's going to happen but you know Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett um had recently opined uh, in the last couple of years that they should just, we should just drop corporate guidance altogether because corporations talk up and down their earnings and, and things like that. So, I mean, does that go away? I don't know. Um, you know, just there's, there's a million other things to everyday life. Like are, are we going to alphabetically get back to work? Like, or alphabetically can, can A through Z through C go to the store today? Or, or how is that, you know, how's the world going to, going to reopen and look? Um, and, and we don't know, but the fact that we're thinking about it and we're starting to hear more about it, I think is really positive instead of, um, you know, you always kind of hear, you want to stay in the moment, but at this point, you don't want to stay in the moment. You want to kind of push forward um, and, and think about, you know, uh, the world and, and whatever it may look like and, and think about the possibility of it actually being better. Um, and think about it being potentially worse, but it, it might actually be better. And I think that's, uh, keep those positive thoughts going this time of year. Right. Well, finally, Rusty, you ended your monthly with a collection of quotes from investment legends. 
um, offering some really useful wisdom that's helpful to turn to during times like these. One of my favorites was not from an investing legend, but the late radio host Paul Harvey, you quoted, he said, in times like these, it's helpful to remember that there have always been times like these. Uh, what are some of your favorites that you're using to keep things in perspective? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I love some of these quotes from some of the investment legends in uh, my library at home and my bookshelf at work. I have obviously a lot of books. Grant has a lot of books. I, our, our investment team, we have a, a lot of books at Orion. So anyway, a couple of my favorites in, you know, one is from my kind of my favorite um, investment money manager over time, uh, Sir John Templeton. And his quote was, the investor who says this time is different when in fact it's virtually a repeat of an earlier situation has uttered among the four most costly words in the annals of investing that this time is different. And obviously there are differences in this environment between other, but the reality is in broad strokes, we've seen this before. Uh, I used to work at Fidelity, uh, FMR Co. back in the 90s, a long time ago. It was right after that the famous uh, money manager, Peter Lynch, retired, though his presence was still around. And he has, if you could just, you can go out and Bing or Google it, his got video on market volatility, which is great. But, you know, he basically says human nature hasn't changed a lot in 25,000 years. Something will come out of left field and the market will go down or the market will go up. Volatility will occur and markets will continue to have these ups and downs. I think that's a great opportunity if people can understand that and what they own. Benjamin Graham is obviously a name we quote quite a bit. In fact, he was the one that came up with uh, the phrase in the short term, the market is a voting machine. The long term, it's a weighing machine, the name of our podcast. Uh, he was the mentor of Warren Buffett. And again, Warren Buffett has a huge influence on all of us at Omaha, at least indirectly, as we've just kind of been in his presence and his learnings the whole time. But Benjamin Graham said, the intelligent investor is a realist who sells to optimist and buys from pessimists. And you know, we talk about sentiment a lot and how it has a contrary uh, impact on forward returns. And then lastly, is it's a, an investment firm that's been around for many decades. They have a lot of great information, including actually a link to a lot of great quotes anyway. And the founder of the firm, Shelby Davis said, you make most of your money in a bear market, you just don't realize it at the time. And those are just some of the quotes I mentioned. Good words to end on. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Hey, Grant, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for uh, having me here virtually. Right. Next up is Rusty's Q&A. Well, today's guest on The Weighing Machine is Sean Clark from Clark Capital in Philadelphia. Welcome to the show, Sean. Rusty, thank you very much. Well, I've known you for many years, and I'm glad to get, have you as a guest on The Weighing Machine. And and. You know, one of the big reasons why you're on the weighing machine is, quite frankly, multiple advisors and multiple wholesalers have said you've got to have Clark Capital on. So I'm glad you're you're on the show. Yeah. Hey, listen to the feedback from your advisors. That's terrific. I know. I know exactly. <laughs> so I finally made it happen. So they'll be, they'll be happy with me. All right, Sean. Before we get into the meat of the interview, I do have to ask the most important question first, and that is. What would you use as your walk-up song? Again, a walk-up song is that song like baseball players have before you know they're walking from the dugout to the plate, or it's like Silicon Valley. It's the it's the person doing the big pitch and they're walking up on the stage. My walk-up song, to give you a little time to think about it, is from a group called Radiohead, and the song is called "I Might Be Wrong." So I know I'm throwing this question at you here, but do you have a walk-up song? Oh gosh, I love it. That's a great that's a great one for you, Rusty. I would probably say so I, I'm a 
I'm a product of growing up and, 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 and listening to classic rock throughout my formative years. And I still do today, you know, bands like the kinks, the who, um, Bruce Springsteen. So I would have to say it might not be my, my walk up song all the time, but I think for right now it would be. And it's, it's a song by the kinks called better things. And, and when I look at the environment that we're in, you know, and, you know, the, the, the virus and the economic shutdown, you know, I, I just think that better things are on the way. Uh, and that's part of the lyrics of that song. So better, better things on kinks. Nice selection. All right, cool. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm and basically how and why the firm got started when it did. Yeah, um, that's a good place to start. You know, I guess you know, by way of background, um, Clark Capital, we, we were founded by my father, Harry Clark, in 1986. And he founded Clark Capital when he was at Merrill Lynch. And, you know, he wanted to go fee only. And, you know, I think at that time he was well, well ahead of, well ahead of his peers. And, you know, Harry, he really founded the firm out of a strong sense of, let's say, independence and loyalty to his clients that he served. He thought he could do a better job by, by not being a captive advisor and being more independent. Um, so I, I like to say at our roots, we know what it's like to be in the advisor's shoes. We've been there. Um, and today we're blessed and fortunate to be able to manage over $18 billion of assets uh, for advisors and their clients. Now, as a firm, we're 100% family and employee owned. And we really love the impact that that has on our corporate culture. You know, a few years ago, um, we wanted to ensure that our employees felt like owners and were owners. So what do we do? We made every employee an owner. Now, we wanted to foster a sense of alignment across all the stakeholders, really beginning with the investors and the advisors that we serve. Um, so we awarded every employee of Clark Capital shares of stock. And now you know, our employees, they all have skin in the game, but it's not just skin in the game for our business. It really is skin in the game for our advisors' businesses and the clients that they entrust us to manage assets for. You know, we know that we wouldn't have a business without advisors trusting us to manage their client assets. So we are really thankful to the advisor community. And for me, you know, it's been a long time. I, I've been at the firm now. I'm going on my 27th year. Um, and as, as a CIO, you know, I'm in charge of leading a team of over 20 investment professionals. And that team that I get to lead every single day is deep, seasoned, and tenured. You know, and we each, each one of us comes to work daily with really one thing on our mind. And that's to deliver investment management excellence um, so our partner advisors can in turn deliver that same investment management excellence to their clients that they serve. Yeah. That ownership structure is really cool. I mean, first of all, studies show that portfolio managers and investment team that eat their own cooking, their portfolios tend to perform better over time. And then when you extend ownership to the employee base, those firms tend to perform better financially over time as well. So obviously you train the employees well, you're treating your clients well, and obviously it's a, a very successful model. Well, that's the business philosophy. Tell us a little bit about the investment philosophy of Clark Capital. Yeah, so every, from an investment philosophy standpoint, everything that we do as an, from an investment standpoint, it really flows from our overriding firm's investment philosophy. 
what we're really striving to do is come alongside the financial plan that advisors put together for their clients and build an allocation that supports that plan. You know, our goal is to build portfolios that deliver what we would call uh, superior risk-adjusted returns through a very disciplined process of, of three things. One is being meaningfully diversified. Second is being tactical and opportunistic at the asset class and security selection level. And third is manage, manage risk. And when I think about the approach and process that, that the investment team uses to manage the portfolios, you know, there's really two strands of DNA that run through what we do. Uh, there's a top-down approach or a top-down strand of DNA and a bottom-up strand of DNA. And if I just touch on those real quickly, you know, the bottom-up approach really drives what we would call more uh, core strategic type portfolios where we're constructing those portfolios using individual stocks and bonds. We're really using fundamental analysis to build those portfolios that's steeped in quantitative models. You know, on the equity side, what we're really trying to do is buy good high, good high quality companies that are undervalued and experiencing improving business conditions. Now we do this in several portfolios from you know, all cap, high dividend equity, small cap, and international ADR on the equity side. On the fixed income side, same thing, we're going out and buying individual bonds uh, but we're buying bonds with a focus on managing three things, managing the credit risk of each bond, the duration risk, and the, the liquidity profile of each bond. And, and as those bonds roll up into the aggregate portfolio, across both taxable and tax-free fixed income. Now, the other strand of DNA that runs through what we do from an investment standpoint is a top-down approach that uses a relative strength methodology, or said differently, uh, a, a relative momentum process. It's really used to, to objectively allocate assets to the strongest areas in the marketplace, and the portfolios that use this top-down approach are more tactical and opportunistic, such as our fixed income total return portfolio, our style opportunity, alternative opportunity, and multi-strat uh, portfolios, just to name just to name a few. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's working. I mean, we know that the fixed income uh, portfolios, the strategy performance over time has been great. The um, application of high net worth strategies has been great as well. So obviously, the investment and business philosophy is working. I want to kind of tease out a little bit more on the family ownership. I think it's pretty unique. Personally, I come from a background where um, I'm almost embarrassed to say that among my my family, so my parents, what my grandparents, and my aunts and uncles, and my siblings, I'm the only one not to have started my own company so far. So everybody's had their own family business, and so I think it's really cool. And something that's really unique about Clark Capital is that it, I mean, it's family run. So many advisors uh, that we work with own their own businesses. So what advice do you have for them? Yeah, that's a really Great question, and uh, and 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 I suppose that I, I'm pretty uniquely qualified to answer that, right? Um, you know, short answer from my perspective, um, it's great working alongside loved ones. You know, I I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, I I, I think Clark Capital is stronger because it's a family business, um, well, family and employee owned business. 
you know, the, the, I think the family makes the business stronger. Um, and that's because the family and community feel kind of permeates throughout our culture. Um, but also the ownership structure, I think, fosters a connection beyond just the, call it blood, family relatives, um, and really creates a broader Clark Capital family. You know, not only does it make the family and business stronger, um, I think we're a tighter family than we otherwise would be. Now, as for advisors, you know, advice to advisors who who own their own business and, and most individual, most advisors do do own their own businesses. Um, I'd say it can't, you know, from my personal experience, it can't all be about the business and the numbers or the family's going to suffer. Um, we have to be, or advisors have to be mindful just not to let the business issues overtake family gatherings where every family gathering turns into a business discussion where um, there's no separation. You know, that separation I think is really important for the business health as well as the family health. Um, and alternatively, it, it just can't all be about the family or the business is going to suffer. So the way we do it is, is we, we think of it as a, it has to be um, meritocracy inside the business where the best ideas are floating to the top, no matter where those ideas are coming from. Yeah. Well, again, uh, obviously it's working. I mean, the, the asset growth of Clark Capital has been huge. So ownership structure, business philosophy, investment philosophy, it's all working. All right, let's get to some juicy material here. And the question, of course, I know you're getting all the time. I'm getting all the time. And that is, what is your assessment of the current market environment in particular? You know, given this market environment, all this volatility has caused so much disruption and opportunity. So of that disruption and opportunity, what are you most concerned about and what are you most excited about? Yeah, let's let's just talk about the environment that went first and then I'll touch on the other aspects of that question. You know, it's it's challenging. It's scary. It's uncertain. You know, the, I, I think those are all understatements right now, too. You know, from from where we see it um, and we're not alone, right? A, a global recession and bear market took hold really is governments implemented social distancing and shelter in place restrictions. And they did that to slow the slow the spread of the virus. You know, there's that that's really something that we've never ever seen before, as it really is a combination of a health crisis and an economic that led to an economic crisis, and uh, and it's and then it, in turn it led to a market liquidity crisis. You know, countries right now representing approximately ninety two percent of global GDP. Those countries are under some form of social distancing policies. You know, that's just economically debilitating. Now, for the U.S. right now, the U.S., we know that the U.S. is going to suffer its worst quarterly economic decline in history in the second quarter. And in our opinion, we're likely to see 20 percent or more uh, of a decline in second quarter GDP. And we're already really seeing the impact of it. We see it in the jobless claim numbers. You know, 22 million people have filed Unemployment um, benefits, first-time unemployment benefits, just over the last four weeks. Those numbers are going to continue to get worse the longer the economy shut down. You know, to, to put that into perspective, job growth, job growth during the record-long expansion that we had following the financial crisis, job growth totaled about 21 and a half million people. In one month time period, more people have been let go than were added to the payrolls in the past almost. 11 years. And right now, the, jo the 
the unemployment rate with all of those first time unemployment uh, people filing for unemployment benefits is probably in the neighborhood of 17%. And that's far above the peak unemployment uh, that we had shortly after the financial crisis that was that was 10%. You know, from a market perspective, Rusty, we've had the fastest ever decline from record high in stocks into a bear market. You know, in a little over a month, the S&P 500 declined 34%. And in the midst of the decline, Rusty, you talked about volatility. Volatility really spiked. You know, the VIX index, the CBOE volatility index hit a record high. Now, there was more selling panic during that this period than there was during the financial crisis based on volatility. And if I can put the volatility a little bit into perspective, you know, the S&P 500 right now, it peaked 41 trading days ago. In 34 of those trading days, uh, the S&P has moved by 1% or more. In nine of those days, it, it moved by more than 5%. So the, these really have been unprecedented times in volatility. And it wasn't just stocks or, or, or equities. It was, it was fixed income. The credit markets froze. Uh, and, and we saw high yield spread spike to 1,100 basis points. Investment grade um, spreads spiked. Uh, so far, we've seen municipal bonds and investment grade credit all get hit too. And you know, right now, you know, it was really evident that investors panicked across all asset classes. You know, there were record outflows from, from both equity and fixed income, mutual funds, and ETFs. But it's not all bad, right? Um, you know, with all of the volatility that we've seen, you know, we tend to think of volatility and we think volatility equals opportunity. So we view this really as an opportunity for active management to shine. You know, in some of our strategies, we de-risked across our more tactically oriented portfolios um, and added a ton of value in those portfolios. We've since gone back into a risk on mode um, and the markets, you know, the markets don't decline by this magnitude very often, right? And, and when they do, it really does provide an opportunity to put money to work that may have been on the sidelines. And for investors with, let's say, a longer term time horizon, you know, they may be able to withstand a little bit more volatility and they can replant some of those seeds. You know, that that's not a that's a that's not a bad thing. Um, I think the final part of that question, Rusty, was 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 kind of what yeah. worries me. And I think what worries me the most is that if this drags on for longer than we expect or the virus really comes back strongly, you know, after the summer, let's say in the fall or winter time. And you know, we know that if the economy opens up too quickly, you know, we do run the risk of increasing the spread of that virus, which I think ultimately would create a longer and deeper economic uh, recession and shutdown. You know, on the other side of that coin, there's also the worry that the longer the economy is suppressed and shut down, the more long-lasting structural damage can be done to the economy, and it will be that much harder to recover. And and that really is the debate that's raging right now between the president and uh, and and the governors. The president did just release guidance on reopening the economy in in, in phases, and in, in in my opinion, he really punted the decision to the governors, whose ultimate responsibility responsibility it is to to decide for their states anyway when right. they reopen. Man, there was so much to unpack in all the comments you just had there. I mean, you're right. Some of these stats. I mean, are just so 
remarkable, so epic, um, and really so amazing. One thing I wanted to kind of tease out a little more is that you said, given all this volatility, this is a good time for active management. And I also, I, I agree with that. I mean, this, if there's going to be a time for active management to work, it should be in this environment, particularly when uh, people are going to have to really dig deeper on finding the companies that will survive this sort of environment. The question I have for you, though, is what do you think investors should look for in a good active manager? Yeah, so we know like pa passive investing in general has uh, it's certainly ruled the roost, right? Especially in terms of flows. Um, active man, but there are active managers that have been able to outperform and that are bucking the trends. Now, I think fortunately we've been one of those managers that has been able to do that in many of our portfolios. Uh, but as far as what investors or advisors should look for uh, in an active manager. I'm going to call it the five P's, you know, the people, philosophy, process, performance, and price. Those are the five P's. Now, for example, um, are, 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 the, are the people and teams that are managing the portfolios today, are they the same that are responsible for the, for the track record of the past? And is the philosophy and portfolio construction process steeped in sound, you know, sound rationale, let's say? And is it the same now as it's been in the past? And is it rigorously applied every single day? Uh, we know we know that even the best managers, the best managers over time are going to face periods of time when their methodology and their process that they use to construct their portfolios is just not being rewarded in the marketplace. Now, what do those managers do in those periods when they're suffering under performance or when their strategies are not being rewarded in the marketplace? Do they stay focused on their proven discipline or conversely, do they change their stripes? Now, I can remember manager after manager after manager in the, in the, in the, the latter part of the 90s where, you know, value managers were going out of business. It was growth, growth, growth at any price. And then managers that, that shifted focus, you know, from a value manager to a growth manager, they did it at the very wrong time. Um, and, and then some of them aren't even around. So, what do those managers do in those periods of time when, when they're underperforming? Hopefully they stick to their discipline uh, that has given them success over longer term time periods and, and they stick with what got them there. I think all of those are important to look for. I like it. Um, do you know what? I like it. You know why I like it? Because at Orion, we also have five P's. Our five P's are slightly different, but you know what? Our five P's actually really dovetail with yours. I mean, the only ones we change a little bit. So we kind of tuck price under philosophy and we put performance under process. The other two P's that we have, which by the way, car capital scores well on, uh, the one P is parent. So you look at the ownership structure and, and the stability of the organization. And then obviously um, car capital scores well on that. And the other one we think is kind of an important twist because we all work with advisors. The other P is partner. So how well does that firm work with financial advisors, basically to empower financial advisors to make sure that investors are having good long-term outcomes? So I love the five Ps. I'll tell you the truth, I always joke around that if you really want to work it, you know, you could probably come up with 10, 12 Ps when it comes to due diligence. But going back to the our current environment of the pandemic, so and this question kind of has more of a family business twist to it. So what advice do you have for advisors that own their own small businesses um, to kind of help them come out on the other side of this pandemic? I mean, what are some of the key elements 
that you think advisors will do well that will help them kind of weather this storm? Yeah, I can share from our own perspective. Um, you know, I, I think first and foremost, it really does have to be about your people and your team. And, you know, what we, what we're doing and saying at Clark Capital, you know, we, we have a saying that uh, asset management is a team sport. You know, so for us, well, with this, with our initial crisis response, we really quickly identified four key priorities to help guide us in all of our decisions to navigate this period. You know, and, and I'll, I'll step through each each of those four. You know, first is you know the health and well being being of our employees and family um, and advisors that we serve is a, is of utmost importance. So for us, you know, we we were one of the first businesses in our area to implement voluntary telecommuting. And then quickly thereafter, we went mandatory work from home and, and shut down and closed our, uh, our physical office location. So you know, we, we really put, our, put, put that as a very high priority for safety for our employees and family members. Now, secondly, was to ensure that our business continues to operate you know, really without disruption. And that was not a short-term fix. That would, that's been a process that's been going on and refreshed over and over and over again. Now, we were able to do this through really good, sound business continuity planning. You know, our technology infrastructure was really strong coming into this. You know, 90, about 95% of our employees have company-issued laptops. So the transition for most of us to work from home was really pretty seamless. And third... You know, our focus has been to continue to deliver asset management excellence to our advisors and clients because that's what they're depending upon us for, especially in these really, really volatile time periods. Uh, and then fourth and lastly is ensure that our advisors feel the proactive leadership, support, outreach, and guidance, um, and that we continue to communicate effectively with our advisors and their clients. I think, Rusty, I think those four principles can apply to any business really any business out there, and in particular to um, to the advisor businesses that we're helping come alongside. Right on. You know, I, I, well said on everything. I was the one thing I was thinking of, the only thing about, you know, working remotely, I mean, in kind of in the old world, I know you and I spent a lot of time on airplanes too, but the, um, so we obviously can work on laptops and smartphones, but you know, the one thing I didn't do is I haven't set up my home office with two humongous screens like I have in the home office. Other than that, I, I'm getting it all done. Okay, so one question here. That yeah, it, it, technology has been great. The technology is terrific. And we're able to communicate and, and video through Teams and Zoom, you know, and really communicate and, and foster a sense of connectivity across all stakeholders. And and that 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 really is has been, I think, different this time. Than if this crisis had happened, you know, and and any other time in the distance. Oh yeah, definitely. So I kind of touch on upon one of the last comments you made there. So what resources um, do you think advisors and investors could use in this environment? I mean, is there anything that you'd recommend or have been recommending? Oh yeah, uh, recommending and using. You know, we we think that advisors should really embrace technology such as Zoom and and Microsoft Teams. You know, and and you know any other video conferencing or collaboration tools that are out there to help really maintain a high level of connectivity with not only their teams and the people they're working with, but also their clients and prospects. You know, I, I, I'd, I'd recommend advisors leverage their business partners for resources. What we're doing is we're, 
we're seeing our partner advisors use this environment to retain and even continue to grow their practices. For example, um, just a couple examples. Our advisors have leveraged what we call our client portfolio management team for you know custom calls with the client base to share our perspectives just about the current environment, the risks we see, the opportunities, and some of the specific steps that we've taken in our portfolios to help minimize risk and take advantage of those opportunities. Now, we've done over, over uh, 300 calls with our very best top advisors that represent over 10,000 of their best clients. Um, we've, we've done it, you know, we've, we've seen advisors continue to request our portfolio diagnostics, you know, from our team of CPAs to help them better analyze client portfolios. And, you know, I, I would recommend for investors, I would really recommend limiting the amount of outside media exposure, just because of all the anxiety that that can create both personally and financially. And instead, I think um, in these, you know, I'll call them really emotionally charged times, given the uncertainty we're all living through, I'd urge investors to rely on experts like their financial advisors and the institutions that they already trust. Those advisors are already their, their, their trusted friends, advisors, you know, rely on them for the information. You know, um, one thing you mentioned, I think is so true is, is just like trying to tune out some of the information, um, which is obviously so difficult because it's such a unique time, you know, and in many ways, uh, your role, my role, I mean, in, in terms of our professional roles, you know, we're talking about the markets and building portfolios and obviously portfolios have to be risk managed and build resiliency in it. But we're not building portfolios for well actually what we are building portfolios for are long-term risk adjusted performance we're not playing it to be as safe as possible so a lot of times we're playing probabilities and expected returns and that is different than you know what public officials are playing because public officials are just playing you know uh you know expect the worst case situation to minimize damage uh completely so i mean we kind of talk different language sometimes uh, from what everybody's hearing on television, I always think that's kind of a big message that we have have to kind of get across to investors. Um, a couple more questions here. So uh, the next one that I have here is the investment industry is rapidly changing. I like to ask this question even before our current environment. How has your firm adapted? Obviously, it's adapting well because, again, your assets under management have exploded in recent years. How has Clark Capital adapted to all the change? Yeah, Rusty, I, I like that question and I like that you preface it because I think in this industry, in this world, in, in, in fact, uh, change is the only constant. So, you know, in, 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 in trying to address that, you know, given, I'd say given our independent spirit as a firm, um, we've, we've tried to look ahead to anticipate what advisors and investors would need in the future and tried to match up our strengths and capability uh, with those needs. So, you know, a, a couple things come to mind. So 20, about 20 years ago or so, we launched um, what we call our high dividend equity portfolio because we know baby boomers would need more than just capital appreciation from their portfolios. They need income too. And, and the dividends would become a very important part of income needs moving forward. So 
our actively managed individual bond portfolios were also born from the idea that we really wanted to serve and cater to the high net worth marketplace, and they were going to need diversified sources of income. Now, in addition, as, as we've seen um, a suite of, of more dynamic, we've seeded a suite of more dynamic strategies like fixed income total return, where we're managing fixed income in a very nimble and opportunistic way to manage the various credit cycles through an economic and business cycle. Yeah, so we, we don't think it's enough to be just strategic in nature, but we also thought it was important to be tactical in nature. So so we built those complementary portfolios as well, you know, many, many, many years ago. We've been managing that strategy now for over 15 years. Um, you know, managing investments in a manner that's delivered incredible value to advisors and investors. Um, you know, we, we really we built from scratch uh, what we call our client portfolio management team to really be the, the, the go-between between the portfolio team and, uh, and, and, and our distribution force. And you know, advisors really heavily utilize that team. You know, our portfolio di- diagnostics, you know, where we have a team of CPAs, pardon me, CFAs, analyzing prospective client portfolios to identify gaps to help advisors win, those, win that business. Um, you know, we also offer quarterly review calls for high net worth clients to help advisors retain that business as well. You know, income planning can be a powerful tool to help investors see or have a blueprint, so to speak, so they can see that their portfolios are structured in a way to help meet their overall financial objectives and income needs into the future. So, I mean, Rusty, we really do think that that in this industry, you really have to be innovative um, and, and you know, forward thinking about what the future may hold. All right. So uh, one thing that, of course, Orion Portfolio Solution works with and obviously do as well is financial advisors. And basically our histories, our success, everything has been wrapped around uh, helping advisors, help investors. What do you think, after all these years of working with advisors, what do you think makes a good financial advisor? And let's just say... Let's just say you're an individual shopping for a financial advisor. What would you be looking for? What attributes? Yeah, Russ, we know, and I, I think I said earlier, um, we know that we would not have a business at Clark Capital without financial advisors who trust us to manage their client assets. So we are forever indebted to financial advisors. Um, I think what makes a good financial advisor is, I think to start with, I think it's someone that doesn't do it all themselves. I think a good advisor should have a seasoned team around them, um, you know, both inside the organization, you know, and, and that for continuity, and and as well as a, a solid team of business partners beyond just their individual practices. I think it's important for an advisor to be comprehensive around you know, various aspects of a client's needs, from the financial plan to tax planning, insurance needs legal advice, you know, bring that legal advice in, legacy planning, asset allocation, and, and, and managing the assets. So it's not just about managing the assets. Now, to put this into a little bit of perspective, I, I saw a Cerulli study last year, and my memory serves me correct. It said the data showed that about 55% of advisory practices 
conduct their own investment research and portfolio construction and, and managing the portfolios in-house. While only, according to Cerulli, only about 7% of those advisors are at scale to do so. So I think the best advisors realize where their strengths are and where their value add is, and then they outsource the rest. You know, so if I were if I were a client, um, look, were an investor looking for an advisor, I I think they would need to start with, with a focus on my financial well being, well being, you know, all my entire goals, not just the investment returns. Um, I would want comprehensive financial planning planning to help provide a roadmap to reach my financial goals. I'd want I'd also want it not just to be about me. I want my family involved in those decisions as well. I think from where I sit, I think the days of advisors just touting investment access and returns, I, I think they're long gone. I think it's much more important than investment returns, um, even though that's what that's what we're trying to do. Um, and 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 I think it's in favor of comprehensive financial planning and overall financial well-being. Right on. Well, Sean, this has been great. I definitely look forward to going to conferences with you again, you know, being on panels with you again, you know, having a, a, a drink after a day of presentations with you somewhere again. So uh, I do really def definitely appreciate your time today. How can listeners of the podcast learn more about Clark Capital? Yeah, Rusty, thank, thank you for those kind words. Um, I, I really do enjoy our friendship. Uh, about Clark Capital and where, where they can learn more. The easiest place is our website, right? www.ccmg.com. Um, in addition, you know that 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 site contains information about some of the stuff that we talked about in this podcast, right? Our story, our people, our culture, and our investment philosophy, to, just to name a few. Um, there's also a blog uh, on the site that that contains our market updates that are timely in nature, our strategy commentaries, uh, and other thoughtful, timely pieces. You know, I would also encourage people to subscribe to the blog, you know, to receive that market commentary whenever, whenever we, we put it out there. And, uh, and finally, and you know, we can always be followed on, on, you know, the, the, the normal social, social media sites, such as, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter, just, just to name Great. it. Well, thanks again, Sean, any closing words? You know, the, these are, you know, these are really challenging times for all of us. You know, we all share, I think, at least personally, um, a deep concern for, for my family, um, my family members, my coworkers, you know, neighbors. Um, and, and I think we all share a deep sense of, of, of feeling for the communities that we live in. Um, you know, I think this, this is a time to, let's say, overprotect, but not overreact, right? I, I think we can all use this as an opportunity to deepen our relationships with not only our teammates, but also our clients. And I think, over-communicating now will help strengthen those relationships into the future. Um, and finally, Rusty, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really thankful that you had me on here. Thank you very much. Right on. Well, those were well-said closing comments. And Sean, I really appreciate your time and your friendship. Be well. That's going to do it for this week. Hey, Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced, stay the course, and stay well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.